Hello again and welcome back to Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. We do this for the Financial Mail every week, but the podcast is on a lot of other platforms as well, including Apple and Spotify, so there's no excuse not to listen. 2021 is my 47th year as a journalist, and I count my good fortune every day. For nearly 20 years of that career, I worked for the Financial Times, an exacting, demanding, also wonderfully happy place to be. I learned pretty much everything I know and made lifelong friends there, and I vividly remember the day the CEO, then merely David Bell, called us all down to the theatre in the basement of the Southwark Bridge building that the FT was then housed in, in London, to introduce us to a weird new concept. He called it FT.com. Mostly we didn't know what he was talking about, and I rather suspect he may not have either. But a few years after that, a special thing happened at the FT. I had already left and was home in South Africa, but I got a call in 2005, I think it was, to say that Lionel Barber had been made editor of the Financial Times. Lionel served until 2019, and on the day he announced he was leaving the paper, a colleague I always admired, John Gapper, poked his head into the editor's office and said something like, thanks, Lionel, you've saved the FT. And he did. It had 80,000 digital subscribers when he took the chair and a newsprint circulation in the falling low hundred thousands. Today, the FT has more than a million subscribers and in my mind is the best newspaper in the world. Lionel retired almost straight into lockdown in London and used the time to write a book about his experiences. It is called The Powerful and the Damned, Private Diaries in Turbulent Times. Lionel Barber joins me today, and I have to tell you, Lionel, that I was a bit reluctant to buy it at first. You're younger and more successful than I am, and it's always difficult. But I found a copy in a tiny store and read it in one sitting, and I'm so glad I did. It's wonderful. Your cast of characters is vividly drawn and interesting, you keep us in touch with developments at the paper as you go along. Many congratulations on the book. Everyone who reads the newspaper or works in one should read it. But Lionel, 14 years is a long editorship. What, what regrets did you leave with? Very few, because I counted myself as so privileged to serve that long, uh, not just under Marjorie Scardino, who you worked for as well, the proprietor, at Pearson, but also through the transition to Japanese ownership, which is almost a, um, a third chapter, a third term, as I describe it. You know, I traveled around the world. I did big interviews. I did what I could. And of course, I made mistakes, but I didn't leave with any regrets because I knew I'd done what I could. I came out on top. I didn't hang on too long, which is what some editors do. Yes, they do. Do you still read the do you still read the paper? I read the paper and I read the website every morning and at night. So maybe not as acutely as I, I did when I was editor. I, I used to consume sort of several thousand words a day, but but yes, I do, and I love the FT. Let's come back to 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 the, the David Bell moment I was talking about earlier on. I'm not sure if you were at that meeting. You might have. You might have still been in Brussels or New York. But he, he announces this thing called FT.com. And I was wondering how much you think you understood as a print journalist, in retrospect, of course, about what digital was going to do to your life. I had a fair big idea. But I have to say, as you know, I was in the contention for running um, to be editor in 2001. 
uh, along with um, a certain Robert Thompson, uh, a gritty Australian, who went yes. off the editor of the Wall Street Journal. Bit of a Shakespearean story that was that he didn't get it, nor did I. We both ended up being editor of respective W. Uh, the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. But at that time in 2001, I definitely did not have a vision of FT.com. And that was some six years after David Bell's presentation. I didn't get it. I think my time in New York, when I was served as the managing editor there running the American operation, was when I began to formulate my ideas of, of what would be necessary. But in all candor, Peter, even when I took over, I don't think I got the whole picture. That was a very much an evolutionary process of just getting to full digital transformation of the FT. It took an awful lot of time to persuade uh, most of the journalists to sort of disengage or, or just realize that print wasn't the focal point at the, at the FT. Were the journalists the problem, Lionel, or, were, or, what about, or, or was the management? Who understood the, who understood the dilemma least? I think that the journalists, <laughs> I think it was actually a fairly tight run race. Um, they were almost sometimes as bad as each other. But look, I think some of the journalists understood and I deliberately hired one or two journalists. I described them as bringing a virus in, into the newsroom to sort of disrupt uh, the operation. And I think in fairness, the the man who took over, John Ridding, um, as CEO, he brought in a very bright uh, young Chinese national called Yen Cheng, who was brilliant in conceiving the business model for digital. So when we got that combination right, and I think what I did was basically say, we are a premium product, we've got to raise prices, and we've really got to um, find a digital expression for our journalism, and then fixing the business model, which was essentially avoiding being disintermediated by these aggregators and selling direct, that combination got us on the path to success. Because what you did at the FT was that you, you simply became not available on the Apple Store or on Google. You were your own digital universe. That was a massive moment um, in 2010. It was one of the proudest moments. I remember the board discussion. And yes, we came to the conclusion that we should develop our own um, web browser uh, and not go into the Apple store and essentially not just pay Apple 30%. Much more important was we're not going to hand over all the data about our customers to Apple or indeed third parties. We're going to actually know our customer, hold on to that data, and then be able to sort of build the relationship direct. I think that was a massive moment, Peter. You're quite right. And it did take some, what I think in the technical phrases, some elephant balls to do that. Yeah. Because there were, it was a stop-start thing with the EFT, as I remember it, because we, we were very much behind the curve. And um, at Business Day, when I first got there, and, and for a long time while I was there, um, but we watched, you know, from the David Bell introduction of FT.com through various iterations of the FT online. When did you know that some really serious numbers here were possible? When did you decide 
that you were going to try and try and make this a million subscriber thing. I just go back a bit. Wind that movie reel back. Um, yeah. At the turn of the century, I just remember the first iteration of dot-com. It was the dot-com bubble. And we tended to treat these people who were working on the website as sort of long-haired uh, uh, youngsters who, who um, were sort of slightly inferior. And they thought themselves that they were superior because that all the valuation was around digital. But of course, both sides were wrong. First of all, the bubble valuations were totally unrealistic and digital was never going to make money through advertising. The idea was, in fact, to build a subscription business. That was the later insight. And the second was that these people were not in, they should not be treated as inf inferior individuals. Actually, they had new skills and there was a whole new way of presenting news and views online and in, in a digital form. And I think that was a gradual realization. The one thing I did do, um, and I, th I think was around the time of the transition to the Japanese ownership, I knew that we needed to do something big. So I did say to John Ridding, you know what, we got to go for a million, and I think we can do it. And initially, he was a bit hesitant. He was worried about you know, not making it. And I said, no, we can do it. And it would also rally everybody around. And by that time, we'd got the journalism. We'd built the top team at the FT editorially. There were some fantastic journalists. I managed to hire some very good ones. And the machine was clicking along. So we could do it. And indeed, we did do it. And we did it ahead of time, two years ahead of time, one million paying readers. You, you in fact, had some very, very good people. I remember uh, visiting the newsroom it must have been in the mid mid uh, 2006 2007 and bumping into a chap called robert shrimsley who was walking around with the first ipad i'd ever seen and he was just a ball of energy and it turns out in your book to be the guy who you lent on on the on the newsroom floor to make things happen you know i'm sure you realize this peter because you know you've been an editor many years the the the, the crucial insight is that the editor is a massively important figure as a leader and a sort of the person that essentially that's where the buck stops. But the talent of being, I think, a very good editor is to be able to spot other talent and get other people to do the important jobs. And also, if you're confident enough to basically devolve some responsibility. And uh, Robert Shrimsley was one of those great hires. And um, so... I made him the news editor, which, as you know, is a focal, again, a very important job in the newsroom. And then I figured we just weren't getting it on digital, and he was the right man. And basically, he did it from 2009 to the end of 2019, 20, when I was in charge, and that until I left. Ten years, yeah. brilliant. Do you think digital has made editors less important or editing less important, less relevant? I'm not sure if it's still the case, but um, we, we had a colleague on the EFT, he became the editor of the Daily Telegraph. And I think after he left, he wasn't replaced as editor. Does the Daily Telegraph have an editor? And why don't I know his or her name? Well, the gentleman you're referring to um, if he, is <laughs> Will Lewis, who then went on to a, a, a sort of a slightly, you know, great, big, huge personality, little bit uh, light with the facts occasionally. Yeah. Uh, but but a brilliant news reporter broke big stories 
and went on to become actually the CEO of Dow Jones. He joined as the Wall Street Journal. Now, um, I think to go to your point, has digital sort of undermined editing or, or sort of weakened it? I think there are two big issues. One is that sub-editors have been the great casualty in the drive to cut costs, and that has undermined quality because sub-editors are the ones who basically assure, you know, they spot the errors, they little factual errors, and 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 they've gone. And then also the, the notion has grown up, well, if it's online, it's a, it's a mistake. We can just fix it because obviously in the newspaper, you couldn't do that. If it was in print, it stayed there and that was it. You had to print a correction the next day. So it's true to a degree, but I have to say, I always insisted, uh, my great phrase was gold standard journalism. And I used to go nuts with people who made mistakes. Um, I think really important that the editor is always the guardian of quality. You, were, you, you wouldn't have been aware of it, but for a while in your final year as editor, I was a sub-editor on the EFT again. Um, and I did some down, down table shifts and it was the most frightening thing I've ever done in my whole life. I mean, I started life out at the EFT as a sub-editor and being a sub-editor now under that, under that print subbing team was absolutely terrifying. They were so meticulous. Um, and so good. I hope they're still there. Um, they were absolutely magnificent. I couldn't keep up basically. My Wi-Fi signal was terrible. I had an Apple and there was a Windows system. It was it was a nightmare. But but boy, that was a wonderful experience for me just to work again on on a paper that demanding and that insistent on on getting it right. It was lovely. I hate to disappoint you, Peter, but uh, I did know you were uh, <laughs> because I used to make sure that I knew everything that was going on in the newsroom. I once was in the newsroom and subbing away and you walked past me and I thought, God, should I talk to him or no? I said, I'd make a spectacle of myself, so I'll let you pass by. But Lionel, the FT now has a new editor. Uh, she's a woman. She was born in Lebanon. And as you said, you're owned by the Japanese. Um, talk a little bit about diversity in the FT newsroom, because when I was there, since 1979 to 1996, I think, um, it was a very white place to be. Yes, and it, it has changed a lot um, over the years. And the most important change has been the, frankly, uh, the necessary shift to better gender balance in the newsroom. We'll talk about diversity in its many aspects in a minute. Yeah. But um, I, I, when I took over, frankly, uh, it was very tricky because uh, there had been one or two appointments, both male and female, which frankly were not up to snuff. And when you take over and there was a bit of a crisis, morale was bad, sales were falling, I had to make some pretty tough decisions early on. And that did mean replacing um, people, including women. And if you're not careful, people then say, well, he's he's not committed to women. And my view was, look, I'm just, I just want to win. Um, I mean, I'm more competitive than the Springboks. Yeah. Um, I really want the best journalists and I'm not going to make any token appointments. So over the years, I made efforts, but I never made a token appointment. And I 
particularly tried to find women in their early to mid thirties who I knew were going to be in leadership positions if they progressed um, in their by their early mid forties. And I think that's come through now. And and first of all, we've got gender balance at the top in the sort of assistant editors. That's 12, 13 people who are in charge of departments. That's a great achievement. I've done again ahead of time. And of course, Rula Halaf um, is, was my successor. Now I should add very, very strongly, this was never a, because she was a woman. She happened to be an outstanding journalist. I was in, watched her close up working with her when we went on assignment in Saudi Arabia, Iran, um, also through the Middle East, uh, Tunisia, I did four trips uh, um, uh, at various times as editor, watched her close up and sort of promoted a foreign editor and then my deputy for the last four years. And she's a great manager. So that's, that's, that's key, that, that management skill combined with being goodness. I think overall diversity when it comes to people of colour, we've got a ways to go there. Um, but it, it's changing. It's important to know as well, I, I consider diversity not just about colour, but also um, geographical background. So a number of Americans uh, were, I promoted to senior positions, including the first one in charge of America, first editorial page, comment editor, uh, leader writer, sorry. And we have a, a New Zealander uh, born in the Middle East who's in charge of Asia. So I think we're pretty diverse. It's less male less white well you, and what about the owners i mean owners make such a huge difference to not only an editor but to the product as well and i always remember thinking because i use them as an example of what a wonderful owner pearson was up until it wasn't anymore the ownership is crucial again speaking as an editor the one thing i valued more than anything else and amazingly it did continue through the japanese um, ownership was I never had to look over my shoulder. Um, I never was worried about an owner interfering in the news coverage or indeed, I have to say, my own appointments because that's a very, very important part of the editor's power and responsibility is the power to appoint. Sure. So Marjorie understood that. By the way, she had been a publisher in her native, but not in, in her native America, in uh, Georgia in Savannah and and actually won a Pulitzer with her husband, uh, Albert, she got journalism. And I think David Bell, although he could occasionally be a bit of a meddler on personnel matters, he completely got um, editorial independence too. They, they were a wonderful duo, those two. Absolutely superb. And, and the Japanese understood the concept of public service journalism, and I think they realised... John Fallon, who succeeded Marjorie Scardino, and he understood... He, he didn't interfere either. The difficulty with him was he was under massive pressure because of Pearson's own difficulties in the education business and they hadn't made the digital transformation. And he wanted, I thought, unrealistically high profits targets for the FT. And we had a bit of a head banging over that privately. But, he, you know, he totally got editorial independence. He likened the sale of the FT or selling it. He didn't want to do it. And then he realised he was going to have to do it to carrying a porcelain vase across a marble floor. Well, he didn't drop it. And the crucial point was the Japanese, they didn't want to drop the porcelain vase. 
and they respected it, uh, editorial independence. I would add one very important thing. I, I made 14 trips to Tokyo from London between 2015 when the purchase happened and the end of 2019 when I stepped down. 14 trips and I spent days there building relationships, including crucially with the proprietor. And I think that helped, frankly, because they needed to be sort of taught about how the FT worked and, and they were very respectful and I think excellent owners. Do you think that will continue? I mean, will Rula not find herself uh, one day with a request to perhaps move the FT office into this building and share, you know, premises and copy, you know, out of Beijing? These things, these things are insidious, you know, and they happen slowly. If you, if you don't fight everything all the time, um, you, you, you lose your precious independence. You know, it's funny, Peter, I never saw it as fighting. Obviously, you were maybe less fortunate in terms of ownership, but I didn't see it as a fight every day. I did. I did definitely uh, feel I had to put a marker down every now and then, including with Pearson, because we had a, um, a Rona Fairhead, who was a colleague, um, ex-CFO of Pearson, very close to Marjorie. She became John Ridding's boss, a sort of rather nebulous job of group CEO at the Financial yeah. Times. And she occasionally would definitely overstep the mark, and I had to slap her down. Yeah. Um, and also just kind of mark my turf. Um, yeah. but with the Japanese, it was never like that. The crucial point, the really important point was I applied the principle of no surprises. So I would, I, if I was contemplating something which would be a bit difficult and on investigations, for example, or a couple of really hairy ones, I just said on the principle of no surprises, you might like to know we're doing this. And that went down very well in Tokyo. That's, that's good thinking. Let's talk about the rest of the world. You, it's, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, you quite rightly fought Brexit, but you lost. I say you lost. I mean, you know, reason lost. Who would have predicted Trump? You know, Trump will be back. Biden won't be. Does Kamala Harris have it in her to take on this new look, utterly irrational Republican Party in four years' time? Well, looking at Brexit, um, you asked me at the beginning of this conversation mm -hmm. whether I had any regrets. I, I regretted that we didn't clock that actually the British people in their wisdom would not opt for rational economic choice, would actually choose by a slim majority, essentially to go the way of identity politics and succumb to the uh, siren calls of these Brexiters led by the um, utterly opportunistic um, character called Boris Johnson, and now our prime minister, and a brilliant campaigner, admittedly, Dominic Cummings who was his, until recently, conciliary, uh, and the equally um, shifty Michael Gove, also now key. By the way, they're both former journalists, Peter, Michael. And yes. And <laughs> Boris Johnson, yeah. that tells you something. But, you know, we, we didn't get that right. And, and we didn't lose the campaign because the politicians, David Cameron, who will go down very badly in history, I think the verdict would be quite harsh on him, on Trump, so convinced he is going to be around. He's going to blow, huff and puff. I don't think he's got the discipline to to fight another campaign. 
it may be the Trump dynasty and his sort of Trumpist politics, populism is certainly will be around. But I'm I'm a I'm a little bit more optimistic about America, not least because you know the the, the system it was really tested did in the end hold, and it held less because of those spineless Republican um, politicians in Washington, and more because the courts in America upheld the electoral process and yeah. some very brave local officials. Yeah. But the reality now, Lionel, I mean, where, where is the world? Is globalization a done, a done thing? Um, or, or do we still live in a recognizable place? You know, it, uh, we're all separated because of coronavirus and we can't check up on each other. And, and, and it, the world feels as if it's sort of fragmenting a little bit. Um, what are the sort of, you know, what are the sort of bars you hold on to, to, you know, not lose hope? Well, I think globalization peaked in 2008 as a result of the global financial crisis and the system almost melted down. I write about that in the book. It was very uh, amazing to watch. And uh, I think the FT played an important role in, in sort of describing this and it's vividly put in the book. Afterwards, then you had the immigration waves, particularly from the Middle East and Africa into Europe, which was again, profoundly destabilizing which again was another aspect of challenging globalization. So first global flow of capital, then flow of people. These were immensely challenged. On the other hand, there are other aspects of globalization, primarily the way technology just smashes down national barriers and is sort of ubiquitous, that change has accelerated. So globalization has taken sort of new forms. Coronavirus, yes, has fragmented the world. It's increasing inequality, very worried about developing countries. You alluded to that. South Africa you know, has had a very, very hard time, but we'll come out of that. I think the, the, the big change in the world that sort of, uh, of when I inherited the editorship in 2005, the big change is China. And China literally has become a superpower in this period. And ch the China-US relationship will be the most important and how it tackles globalization, how, how that power adjustment um, works, whether we move as under Trump more towards a sort of 19th century, um, each man for himself, nationalism, or whether it's tempered and there's sort of a limited degree of cooperation allowing globalization to sort of carry on in a slightly different form, we don't know yet. Twice, I think, you've met, in, certainly from the, what I got out of the book, you met uh, Vladimir Putin twice. The second time was a, an interview late in your editorship uh, in Moscow when he tells you, and I remember the front page of the paper that night, um, that the liberal order is dead. What is it like? Talk to me about Putin for a moment. What's, what is it like talking to him? And is he, is it creepy? Or how creepy is it? Talking close up with Vladimir Putin is, is, a, is a very creepy experience. I mean, he has ice in his soul. Uh, he has watery eyes that sort of study you a little bit like a, not that I've been that close to a shark, but it reminds me of a shark. And he's very, speaks very quietly and he's constantly trying to put you off balance. He's the master of destabilization. So there'll be a slight facial tip, a change, and 
And he will just sort of quietly say, well, actually, you're talking rubbish. Uh, well, he won't say rubbish, but I, I don't think you quite got this right. And it's, it's really quite chilling. So um, interviewing him requires a lot of discipline. You've got to not watch, in, in effect, let him mesmerize you. You need to um, improvise at the right time, try and destabilize him a bit, so, which is why I spoke German to him. Uh, at the beginning of our interview, knowing that he did speak German, he understood it because he was a secret agent for the KGB in East Germany. So there were little tricks like that. And in the end, as you say, by asking that question, slightly riling him by saying, well, we've had populism in America, we've had populism in Spain, uh, the virus in, in Italy, France. Um, when's it going to come to Russia? And that really irritated him. And that's why he then counterattack by saying, well, liberal democracy, that whole idea is obsolete, it's dead, which was a great story. And, and you always know when somebody's given you your lead, don't you? It's, a, it's, a, it's the sort of, it's the sort of bong moment in, in, in any interview. You almost want to walk out right then. Lana, what, what do you think, sitting outside of journalism now, what's the biggest threat to our trade? I've got to say, I just remember that bong moment. It was as if all the bells in the Kremlin were going, yes. And I, <laughs> I, I mean, it was just so magical. Yeah. As you know, we've been going on for an hour and we had reasonable stuff. But when he said that, I just thought, front page, front page. And, and it is a totally magic sensation. The biggest threat to our um, is fragmentation, I think, that everybody goes into their own sort of echo chamber and people who are trying to write for a broad constituency um, get essentially sliced and diced to death or they decline. I think that's a very serious, I worry a great deal about general newspapers at local level and news organizations that they're being eliminated and therefore there's, there's no sense of community through a newspaper uh, no accountability of local government, which is very, very important. I worry about that. And I suppose the last thing is I worry that news organizations essentially decide that there's no point in chasing a broad audience. It's more, um, it's more profitable or the best route to survival is essentially to reinforce the prejudices of an existing audience. And if, if, you know, that's, that's like the Trump bump that essentially you do everything is anti-Trump and you'll get in America and you'll get a bigger audience. I worry about that. I think that's not good. I think people should still, I, at least in the news pages and news, uh, uh online to give uh, a 360 degree reporting of stories and stick to the facts. And, and what would you say to owners of those newspapers? I mean, to not to the editors, but to the owners. So all around the world, there are a lot of people who own struggling newspapers, falling circulations. They've tried a little bit of online. It kind of works, but they, you know, they're too scared to charge for it because people might go and read, you know, the Guardian or whatever it might be. What, what if you've, you know, you've, 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 you've got a, you've got a, a billion or 800 million pounds or 500 million pounds in a in a newspaper or um what do you do what if you're the owner it's it's your money how do you apart from just getting the hell out how do you make it grow 
Well, the first and crucial task is to identify what is your audience. Uh, who are you trying to persuade? And the second point is that they've got to pay for content. I'm clear about that. Uh, now, there may be a way of, of, again, slicing and dicing here that maybe you, you, you get people to pay and give them something else. I mean, you could join, for example, if you, if you, if you did a deal with Netflix, for example, and Netflix, um, gave, you know, is, is, is providing, uh, film content and then they'd offer, say something of the FT, I'm making this up, but I mean, if it's part of the sort of offering that the consumer offering, that's one route that, that may be a bit fanciful. So then what you've got to do is, is say, look, we're not charging you enough, but, but here we're not charging you that much, but here crucially are the three things that this news organization is providing that you can get nowhere else. And it could be a voice as a commentator. It could be something, you know, really interesting around technology or medicine or something like that. If you're in a place like Boston, for example, the, the, the news organization is delivering something which you cannot get. And, and I think then offers, this is very important, but good editors can do this, um, an emotional attachment to the reader. That's the way forward. Now, it is a bit of a leap of faith. Um, but if you look at some of the specialists, well, they're not really even specialists, but look at the spectator in the UK. It's growing. And the reason it's growing is because number one, it's got great writing. And number two, it's got an editor who understands that you need that sort of slight unpredictable, that it's really fun and enjoyable. It's not like eating broccoli. Um, I used to describe that as the, Sometimes the weekday paper at the FT was like munching broccoli and the weekend was cherries and cream. Um, I don't care what the combination is, but you've got to do something that's that people actually want to read it, that they're not forcing it down their throat. And then that's the way forward. Um, and it, the owners also have to realize that you're in a transition. This is going to last some time. You're not going to make loads of money but you will have a degree of sort of influence and cachet around owning a news organization. One of the threads through the book, and I was very moved by it because I didn't know about it. And I'd, it was reading the book taught me something about you is your long-standing friendship with Mario Draghi, the Italian former head of the European central bank. And I believe is now the new or soon to be the new Italian prime minister. Um, and what made me, think of him and that was that you I also saw your name associated the other day with the launch of a new newspaper or a relaunch of it or the acquisition of a newspaper called the new European um, I'm not sure what your role is in the new European but you'll have an opportunity there because I'm sure like many other newspapers of that kind it'll be it'll be involved engaged in its own struggles for survival what's what's the what's the sort of Lionel Barber role and plan in the new European when it, it changes hands? Well, it has changed hands. It makes a very, very small profit on a shoestring budget. It has 20,000 readers uh, circulation. It was a pop-up newspaper launched directly after the Brexit referendum. 
which, uh, as you know, led to the UK leaving. And 48% of people who voted were Remainers, people who believed in the EU membership. And that newspaper, which I had nothing to do with at the time, obviously I was editor of the FT, um, appealed to that 48%. So the editor, uh, Matt Kelly, then went on to um, uh, have a commercial role, approached me last December and said, look, we've got a group of investors. We think we can make this not just successful, but profitable on a sustainable basis. Could you help? And by the way, would you be interested in being a partner, know, investing a bit of money? So I, uh, as you say, I've been, I'm generally sort of pro-European, been so all my life. I spent six years in Brussels, which is when I met Mario Draghi, by the way, when I was on a sabbatical in Italy. And I went down to Rome and met this modest technocrat and became friends with him. And I've known him for 25 years, talked regularly with him. Great, I'm a great admirer of him. Wish him well in his new job. It's going to be damn difficult as Prime Minister of Italy. Uh, now currently sort of ravaged by the pandemic, uh, as well as sort of fratricidal politics. But I think there is a space for a pro-European, overtly pro-European newspaper in with a digital presence in the UK. There may be some opportunities to grow in Europe. But what we've got to do, and I'm helping Matt with this, is develop an identity which is not just anti-Brexit. I mean, that war is over. The UK has left the EU. So what we're trying to do is develop a new identity and a sort of new chapter for the new European. And I think it's going to be fascinating. I'm not going to be the editor, but I can do some writing and some uh, consulting and helping. And that's my job. And 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 try to bring to it which, which, what you say the editor of The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, had, which is a sense of fun to it all. Um, uh, and I, yeah, Lionel, well, look, good luck with the new European. Good luck with whatever you do uh, in the future. I'm sure it won't begin or end with with the new newspaper. I'm sure you're going to do lots of interesting things. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, it's a privilege to talk to you. The book is The Powerful and the Damned. The cover is the same salmon as the FT is still printed on every day. It's a pleasure to talk to you and be with you always for Lionel, particularly for the support you always gave me when we were both editors in the same group. And later when the Gupta family and their thugs were on my case, I'll never forget it. I really do. I really do thank you very much for that all. And uh, yeah, good luck. Thanks, Peter. I'll see you for a Pinot Noir down in South Africa once this plague is over. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm Peter Bruce. Please join me again next week for Podcasts from the Edge when we'll have another exciting and interesting guest who will teach me uh, one or two things about all the things I don't know anything about, which is why I do this podcast in the first place. Thanks for joining. Have a great week. Thank you.